Have you ever heard the saying, I'm too blessed to be stressed? Oftentimes people will use this saying when they are facing some difficulty and they're trying to remember and remind themselves of the blessings that they have in comparison to the suffering or the difficulty or the trial that they're facing. And that statement is true. We are too blessed to be stressed over the difficulties that we face. But when people make that statement, they often do not mean that whatever it is that is stressing them, the suffering or the trial, that that suffering and a trial is in itself a blessing from God. But that's the approach that the Apostle Peter takes in the passage that we've just heard read to us. We have to view our suffering rightly viewing it as in itself a means that God is using to bless us. On the night when Jesus was being coming up to His betrayal, His crucifixion, He prayed in what's called the High Priestly Prayer in John 17 verse 1. He had spoken some words of instruction to the disciples, and He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, my hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Jesus viewed the suffering that was to come to Him on the cross and in His death as a means by which His Father would glorify Him. Notice that. The Father will give me glory by bringing suffering to me. And we know that Initially, as Jesus was revealing this to the disciples, they didn't like it. They had stumbling blocks. They didn't view that the way to glory was, and the way to exaltation was by the way of the cross. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Peter, who penned this letter, had to be rebuked by the Lord Jesus because Jesus himself was rebuking Jesus for saying that he had to suffer. That wasn't in their understanding. But thankfully, by the time Peter came to writing this letter, he understood that. And he actually hints at that. He not only understood that Christ was glorified through his suffering, but he also came to understand that we as Christians share in Christ's glory by sharing in his suffering. And he talks about in this passage how our own suffering is a blessing. We're too blessed to be stressed because even in our suffering, God is bringing it as a blessing to our life. And He points to a future blessing that our suffering brings, and He points to a present blessing that our suffering brings. That future blessing is seen there in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Do not be surprised, but rejoice Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And we are going to be glad when His glory is revealed because we will share in Christ's glory. Earlier in this letter, and Peter's really coming back to this theme that he mentioned in the first chapter, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7, through 7, he makes it there even more explicitly clear. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found in result, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's point is, remember, the end of all things is at hand. That's talking about the return of Christ. When Christ is revealed, you want to receive praise and honor and glory from Christ. And the way that happens is that your faith has to be tested to show that it's genuine when Christ comes here. And the only way to show that your faith is genuine is if it's tested by trials by suffering. And if your faith is proved to be genuine, then when Christ reveals, you will receive praise and honor and glory. There's the future blessing that our suffering brings to us. And of course, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, the last beatitude gives this future reward that comes for suffering for His sake. Jesus says there, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our suffering for Christ is in itself a blessing because it is storing up for us praise and honor and glory when Christ returns. But there's also a present blessing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 14. As though something strange were happening to you, if you are insulted, verse 14, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I'm too blessed to be stressed. This persecution, this insult, this suffering that I'm experiencing because of my allegiance to Christ, it has brought the present blessing that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon me. His suffering not only promises me future praise, honor, and glory at the return of Christ, it also means that in that suffering, God's presence is with me. And that's interesting because most people, when they suffer, begin to ask, where is God? Has God abandoned me? And that's not the case. Christ is never closer to His people than when they are suffering because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon them. And that's the same language that's used in Isaiah when the Spirit comes to rest upon the future Messiah, the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, you see our blessedness, our happiness is due to our favorable treatment by God. Yes, we're suffering because of our allegiance to Him. But we are happy and blessed because that suffering also invites the presence of God Himself. So when we think about the fact that the end of all things is near, we saw that last week in verse 7. And Peter's giving instruction that because we know the last thing on Jesus' agenda is to, for Him to return to the earth, we want to make sure that we're acting rightly when Jesus returns. 
And we saw last week that when Christ returns, we want to be found busy serving others. When all of the world's collapsing around us, we're not thinking about ourselves first and foremost. We're concerned about using our lives to serve others. We do that by praying with awareness, by loving with grace, by welcoming others without grumbling about having to help them, and using our gifts, whether we are speaking God's Word or serving God's people, we're exercising those gifts as something God has entrusted to us. God has given to us to use so that we have to rely on His power and it slays our pride. And we know that when we use our gifts that way, we bring glory to God. But we not only prepare for the return of Christ and the end of the world by serving others, we also prepare for the end of the world by being prepared to welcome suffering when it comes to us. Now we've seen the why We want to welcome suffering because God uses suffering as a blessing to us. It helps us be prepared for when He returns so that we can receive that praise, honor, and glory. And it's a blessing because when suffering comes, God's Spirit is resting upon us. His presence is with us when we suffer because of our allegiance to Him. That's the why when we view it rightly. The second question is more of the how, right? We want to, as Peter's telling us in this passage, suit up for the opportunity to suffer for Christ. We don't want to just be busy serving others. We want to suit up. We want to be prepared for this opportunity God has given to us to receive His blessing by suffering for His name. And how is it that we properly do this? How is it that we can sort of mimic the same example that the Lord Jesus and the apostles themselves give to us? I find this very interesting that in Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41, when the apostles are given the opportunity to be beaten and told no longer to speak for Christ, this is the account that Luke records there. And when they had called in the apostles, that is the religious leaders of that day, they beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. Then that the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, that is, the name of Christ. How is it that we cultivate that same type of response that when the apostles suffered from Christ, their faith was proven to be genuine. They were thankful for the opportunity to be beaten and instructed not to preach Christ anymore versus shrinking back in fear and denying Christ as they had done when Christ was arrested and tried and crucified. Well, we have to reflect on the why we should view that suffering as a positive, and we've done that. Now, I want to draw your attention to three pledges that you need to be willing to make this morning in order to welcome suffering well in your life. The first pledge you need to make to welcome suffering is you need to pledge that I will embrace my suffering as for my own Good. I will embrace my suffering as something good for me. Notice what's said here in verse 12, chapter 4, 1 Peter. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When Peter talks about rejoicing in their suffering, that when they're insulted for their allegiance of Christ, recognizing that they're blessed, Peter isn't saying that we should find some kind of joy in the suffering in itself. Because there are people who sort of take perverse joy in suffering for various reasons, sometimes because of the sympathy that it might bring to them, right? Peter's not saying, be happy that you're experiencing a beating or experiencing pain or a difficulty because you're trying to be faithful to Christ. He's not saying rejoice in the suffering in itself. Nor is he calling for us as Christians to seek out suffering. Right? Well, if suffering's a blessing, then man, hey, I'm going to go whip up some of that. I'm going to go find some ways to stir up some trouble. Find ways that I could do that. And we laugh, but there, there are things in the history of the church where people have done that, who've sought out martyrdom and persecution uh, because of various reasons. One of them thinking, well, this is a blessing, so let's go seek it out. That's not what Peter is talking about. And Peter's also not talking about rejoicing and suffering that we've brought upon ourselves, right? He mentions that there, right? Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, right? There's suffering that we can bring upon ourselves because we do things the wrong way. If you go out and murder someone and then you're put in jail or you face execution, oh, I'm suffering unjustly. No, you're not, right? You've done something wrong and you deserve that suffering. You deserve that punishment. Peter's focus here is suffering that comes to us because we're doing what God has called us to do. Because we're speaking God's word as God's called us to do. And he's saying, when you speak my word, when you seek to live out my truth, you're going to face opposition for other people. You're going to suffer for that, right? We saw a little bit of this last week. If you go back in earlier chapter 4 here, 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, right? They insult you. They make fun of you. Oh, you're too goody two-shoes to come party with us, or whatever it is, the insults that they would give. And Peter's now coming back to that and saying, look, when you suffer for holding faithful to Christ and His teaching, don't be surprised when that happens, as a matter of fact, understand you're under the blessing of God because you're going to receive praise and honor and glory when Christ comes because you're truly trusting in Christ and your faith in Christ is proven because you don't go along with the things that the pagans do. You're not following after what they did, what you used to do. You've had a change of heart. And so he's talking about suffering because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
Now, when suffering comes, there are certain natural reactions that Peter addresses here. Natural reactions that we need to avoid. Even though they're natural, it doesn't mean they're right. The first natural reaction we need to avoid is we do not, we don't need to be surprised, right? Don't be surprised when this suffering comes. He says that there. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, right? Don't be surprised. And Peter understands if they are astonished at the suffering that occurs because they're Christian, they are going to be tempted to be overwhelmed and conclude that God doesn't love us anymore or God has abandoned us or we're somehow displeasing to God because they're suffering. Now, it is true that God can use suffering as a means to discipline us, right? But again, Peter's focus here isn't on God using suffering as a means of discipline. He's, using, he's talking about suffering that comes when we are being faithful. When we speak up to God's truth and someone calls us a bigot, or they call us homophobic or transphobic. Those are a, a means of maligning and insulting, and the attempt is to shame us to keep silent about what God's Word says. And Peter's point is, look, when you have that suffering that comes, you are blessed. You are blessed. Don't be surprised. And we as Christians should not be surprised by these fiery trails. But instead, we should rejoice in the evidence we're suffering. It means that the Holy One has taken up His dwelling with His people. These sufferings are not a sign of God's absence, but of His purifying presence with His people. Not only should we don't be surprised when we suffer, but we, we don't need to be weirded out when we suffer, right? He goes on there in verse 12, as beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This isn't some weird situations that's occurring. Rather, the readers and ourselves are to be encouraged to see God's good purpose behind our difficulties, and when we see that God has a purpose behind this, it enables us to grow stronger in our faith, trusting God in the midst of this difficulty, and then in turn that glorifies our Lord. So this suffering we experience because of our allegiance to Christ isn't a strange part of God's agenda for our lives. It's part of the way He wants to bless us. And we're going to see in more detail what that looks like here in a minute. Natural reactions to avoid. Don't be surprised. Don't be weirded out. And don't be ashamed because you're suffering. Now, Peter knew how easily people can rationalize punishments that are deserved and explain them as Christian suffering, right? That's why he says there, verse 15, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Right? He's saying, look, if you go out and kill somebody in the name of Jesus, you're going to go to jail. Right? Right? This is why we as Christians don't bomb abortion clinics. It's why we don't storm the Capitol. Right? We don't do things that are against the law. Because then we're going to suffer, but it's not because we're doing God's work. It's because we're actually violating what God told us not to do. Right? We've got to understand that. Because there is a movement within Christianity where people think you can do these things and, and then they just they blanket it with, well, this is suffering for Christ. When in reality, it's suffering for something they wanted to do or they've been caught up in some political agenda. 
We have to be careful about that. We don't burn down police precincts. And as I said, we don't bomb abortion clinics in an attempt to sort of pursue justice and righteousness. God's not a part of that. And we will suffer if we do it, but not as a Christian. We will be suffering for our own disobedience. When we as Christians also can feel discriminated against because of our faith, that may be true and that does happen. Peter makes that clear, right? Woe to us if everybody speaks well of us. There ought to be some suffering in our life because we are aligned with Christ and because we speak His truth and live by His truth, right? That ought to happen. But there can come suffering and discrimination because of our own fault and our own failings. And I think that's what Peter's hinting at here. I don't think they were actually murdering people and being thieves, right? He was just pointing out obvious examples. And then he gets into things that are more likely to happen. He uses this more general term as an evildoer, right? Any kind of general evil that you could get involved in. And then he uses the phrase, or as a meddler, as a busybody. Someone who's given in to excessive zeal and at critiquing pagan culture, right? This is what Peter's talking about. He's saying, look, you can, you can go around talking to the larger society in such a way that you bring suffering upon yourself that God doesn't want you to experience. This is hard, right? It requires wisdom to know what it looks like to have a prophetic voice in society and what it looks like when we become a meddler or a busybody in those things. I don't have a clear-cut example for you on that, but we have to find that balance. And I think this is what Paul was hinting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 10 through 13, he's dealing with someone within the church who had had an improper relationship with his stepmother. And basically, Paul writes there, Now I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is, who calls themselves a Christian. Don't associate with someone who says, I'm a Christian, but is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul's point is, my, my, my mission as an apostle is not to go around telling all the pagans all the things that they're doing is wrong. They're pagans. His job was to preach the gospel and to see them converted out of that, and through faith in Christ, they would then turn away from those things they once did, as Peter pointed out there earlier, we just read in 1 Peter chapter 4. He's saying, I'm not there to judge outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Hold Christians to this standard because they claim to be Christians, but not outsiders. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So Peter wanted to refrain, believers to refrain from acting tactlessly, lacking social grace and knowing how to communicate what they believed to the broader society, right? So those are the natural reactions. When we think about embracing my suffering as my own good, there's certain we want to be surprised. We might think our suffering is strange. We might be ashamed to be tempted to be ashamed because we're suffering for Christ. And Peter's saying, don't do that. 
Don't be surprised. Don't think what's happening to you is some weird thing. Don't be ashamed that you suffer as long as you're suffering for your allegiance to Christ, not because you've done something wrong or you're being a meddler or a busybody in things that aren't your business. But there's spiritual realities that we need to acknowledge as well. If we're going to embrace that suffering comes to us as our good, it's not just avoiding these negative natural reactions. We also have to recognize and understand the spiritual realities that God is accomplishing behind our suffering. And there are really two of these that I want to point out here in this passage. The first is understanding that our suffering purifies our behavior. Our suffering purifies our behavior, right? Peter is not talking about this fiery trials here that God is using as a means of discipline or punishment for believers. He can do that, but that's not his focus here. Rather, he's saying that this suffering will, though, purify the church. It's not a means of discipline. It's a means of making us more and more like Christ. He hints at this earlier in chapter 4, verse 1. He says there, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He who has suffered in his body has purified his life. That's the idea, right? And Peter's just picking that back up again. And this isn't anything new to the New Testament. God is often... taught in the New Testament that God uses trials to strengthen the character of believers and to make them more fit for His presence. We read earlier 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, James chapter 1 verse 2 through 4 says, count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. One of the ways that God continues His ongoing work in our life in shaping us more and more like Christ and less and less like our old selves is He uses suffering to do that. Again, not necessarily as a means of punishment, but simply as a means of making us more and more into the image of Christ. And Peter here is, is actually calling upon, when he uses this phrase there in verse 12, do not be dis- surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He's actually calling back to the Old Testament. There's actually two passages. We'll look at one next week, Ezekiel chapter 9. But this one is more in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The prophet there says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Right? So now you have the presence of the Lord in his temple. And here in the New Testament, we know God doesn't dwell in a physical temple. Right? A building. Right? Rather, the church is the temple of God. Right? God's presence in his temple. God's presence among his people, the church. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Why? For he is like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. 
He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness before the Lord. So the prophet Malachi says, listen, God is going to come to his temple. And when he comes, people will not be able to stand before him because he is going to bring the refiner's fire to work upon his people. So that when they do come and bring their offerings as worship, it will come in righteousness. Peter's taking that imagery and he's saying, look, we as the church are God's people. When we're suffering, God's presence is there, right? If you're insulted for Christ's name, you are blessed for the spirit of glory dwells upon you. But when the spirit of glory comes to dwell, it's not so we can just dance around and have a, you know, a rave or something like that, right? The spirit of glory is coming to rest upon us to do a work in us, to make us more and more like Christ, okay? And then as a result of that purification... When we come to worship, when we live our lives, we do it more and more with the righteousness that reflects God at work in our lives. This judgment, as Malachi mentions there, begins in the house of the Lord, in the temple. That's how verse 4 ends. And then in verse 5, Malachi goes on to say, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So you notice that, right? Judgment starts in the temple, purifying the sons of Levi, those who were called to serve in the temple. And then that judgment moves out into the world. And Peter follows that same pattern here, right? He says there in verse 7, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's what that purification process is. Now, our problem is when we hear judgment, we think courtroom automatically, right? If you're in courtroom, it's not good, all right? That's the wrong image you should have. Let's move from the courtroom and let's go to the Iowa State Fair. All right, And let's imagine you've brought some tomatoes there to be judged. You're hoping to take home that blue ribbon for the best tomatoes in the state of Iowa. Guess what? Who's going to make that determination? A judge, right? Think about that when you think about the judge here. It's someone at the state, the state fair, and they're going to look at those tomatoes, and they're going to look at the how does the tomato appear to the eye. They're going to pick that tomato up, and is it firm enough, or is it too squishy? And then they might slice the tomatoes, and then they take a bite of, to determine taste. There's a standard by which they're going to determine those get rewarded, and which of these tomatoes aren't up to snuff, okay? That's the idea. Hopefully you know that euphemism, up to snuff, right? It's up to standard, okay? Sometimes I forget, not everybody's from Alabama, okay? (laughs) All right, and so that's what's taking place when it says that the judgment begins at the household of God. The end of the time is near. Christ's return is soon, but Peter's saying God's already starting to carry out judgment. And he's starting not with the world, he's starting in the church, in God's temple. And what he's doing is he has a standard. He wants to know who is truly trusting me. Who has real faith? Not just they say they're a Christian. Who has genuine trust 
in my son Jesus Christ for their salvation. And so, just like with those tomatoes at the state fair, there's a standard, right? What does it look like? How does it feel? How does it taste? And the standard God has for whether we have genuine faith is, does it survive suffering? And so, He tries us. He's saying, is this faith real? I don't know. Let's test it. Let's see what happens when this person who says, I trust in Christ, is called upon to do something and people insult them. Or they have to lose their job because they're a speaker of God's Word. They're not going to back down. Genuine faith says, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust Him to provide a new job. I'm going to trust Him to defend me against these insults. I'm going to trust that His Word is true and every man is a liar. Genuine faith comes through the suffering trusting in Christ. False believers, and the world is full of them, once suffering comes, exposes them as not true believers. And brothers and sisters, even as we, even in our own day, we have churches and pastors and people that fill those churches that are being exposed as false believers. When the time of trial comes to stand up and speak God's truth, they speak lies. They go along with what the world says. So they don't face those insults. Because they don't get sort of pushed out and ostracized from the end table and thought cool or acceptable. And therefore they are proving themselves to be false people, not genuine believers. That's what Peter means when he says this judgment begins out the household of God. And that judgment comes in the form of suffering for our allegiance to Christ. That's what happens. But he goes on from there, just as Malachi did. The judgment doesn't stop there. It begins at the household of God. But then he goes on there in verse 17. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes Proverbs, uh, Proverbs eleven thirty one, I believe it is there, in verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, or with, saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter's point there is, look, God saves His people by faith in Christ. That's how we're saved. We're not saved because we endure suffering well. That's not the ground of our salvation. We're saved because we're trusting that Christ died in our place on the cross and that He has the gift of eternal life because He has been raised from the dead. But how do we know if we really believe that? And it's just not empty words coming out of our mouth. God brings suffering, and when we are able to endure that suffering because of our allegiance to Christ, it's, it's like God saying, see, you've proven to be true. It's not just empty talk. But it's still hard, right? It's not, the suffering isn't fun, it's difficult. And that's why when he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, if he is saved with difficulty... We have to endure the insult. We have to endure the ostracism. We have to endure this punishment from the world. But in it is a blessing because it brings God's presence. And God's presence purifies our faith. And then it proves that it's real. And that gives us an assurance that our profession of faith in Christ is not just some empty talk. It's got some proof to it. Right? That's how we know it's real. And so he not only talks about the purity that's coming through the judgment we face, 
But eventually when Christ returns, the judgment of the entire world will come. And if we have to face this as God's people, how much worse will it be for those that are not Christians? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, right? We don't, the church didn't create this to sort of manipulate people. That's what a lot of times people think is behind judgment and and eternal destruction. Jesus spoke more about that than any other writer in the Bible. Meek and lowly Jesus. Because it's a reality that he doesn't want anyone to face. And that's the spirit of my heart in bringing this truth to you. Paul echoed this same thought in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 when Christians there were facing persecution from the world. And he said to them, he said, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Those who are insulting you, those who are afflicting you because you're Christians, God has determined it's just that He will afflict them one day. And grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, brothers and sisters, that verse is just as true as John three sixteen, And we cannot shy away from that because people are going to call us a fire and damnation preacher. That's just another way of saying you're going to preach the Bible. We can't be intimidated by those things. But this fire of judgment that will come when Christ comes has already started to burn in the sufferings that the Christians experience because of their allegiance to Christ. So we embrace our sufferings for our own good by avoiding those natural reactions and by reflecting and acknowledging these spiritual realities that our suffering purifies our behavior and our suffering proves our belief. It proves that our faith in Christ is real. That's why every Christian in some form or function will suffer for the Lord Jesus in their life because it will be the proof on the judgment day that our faith is genuine. Look at the second pledge. These last two are much shorter here. The second pledge you have to make if you're going to truly welcome suffering is not only to embrace these sufferings as good for you, but also to entrust your suffering soul to God. That when suffering comes, you entrust yourself to Him. We learn from verse 12 and verses 17 and 18 that suffering, when it strikes us as believers, it is according to God's purpose. It's not a strange thing. It's not some kind of messed up glitch in the system of the world when we suffer. That's not it. This suffering that comes to us passes through the hands of our loving Father. And hence, those who belong to this God must entrust their lives to this faithful Creator, just as Jesus Himself entrusted His life to God when He suffered. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And this is hard for us to hear as Americans, right? It's hard for us to hear this. But again, Jesus didn't fire back when they threatened and insulted him. They instead entrusted, he entrusted his soul to his father. And those of us, when we suffer for our allegiance to Christ, can place ourselves in the care of God. Even when Jesus was on the cross and dying, and he quotes Psalm 31, verse 5, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We likewise, when we face suffering, we entrust our lives to God, knowing that he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy because he wisely limits our suffering. Right? God oversees the duration of our suffering, how long it's going to last, and He oversees the intensity of our suffering. How intense and deep will that suffering is? It's not by accident. All right? Everything has been filtered through the meticulous wisdom of God. And He has cooked up the exact test that you need to produce Christ in you and for it to be proof that your faith is is not faulty, but that it is real. So we entrust our suffering soul to God because He's trustworthy. And He's trustworthy because He limits our suffering, and He's trustworthy because He wisely uses our suffering. It's not a waste. It's not some diabolical deity in heaven that's sort of taking amusement at watching us suffer. No, 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 no. He has good purposes behind why He allows us to face this type of suffering for the name of Christ. He uses it for our good, to purify us, to draw us closer to the Lord, to make us more and more like Him in our lives. And knowing that when we suffer, we're not doing it alone. He has promised the presence of His own Spirit of glory upon us. And therefore, we can depend upon Him as our faithful Creator and as our loving Savior who suffered as we suffer. The third pledge that you have to make this morning, if you're going to welcome suffering for Christ, not only I will pledge that I will embrace my suffering as for my own good, not only pledge I will entrust my suffering soul to the trustworthy God who limits and wisely uses my suffering, but I will ensure that my suffering fuels doing good. When we suffer... A lot of times we want to stop doing what we need to do and focus on our suffering. But notice what he says there in verse 19, chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, that is, they're suffering as a Christian, not for something they shouldn't have been doing, who suffer according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While it may be the last thing we want, to do while we're suffering is doing good for others. That is what we're called to do. You see, commitment to God is not simply flight to God, entrusting ourselves to God when suffering comes. That's not just it. We have to do that. But commitment is also active. We commit ourselves to a life of doing good, a life of serving others welcoming them without grumbling, using our gifts of speaking God's word and serving God's people, of praying with an awareness for those things and for those people, for loving people with grace. We serve them. 
You see, the way that believers will reveal that they are trusting God in the midst of their suffering is by continuing doing good. And you can only do this if you truly are trusting in Christ. He alone can give you the power to do it. You can't fake it till you make it there. It doesn't work. You have to have it. You see, such commitment to God's care must be accompanied by doing what is good. And Peter litters his letter with this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Then in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Then in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness. And respect. Wow, that's a that's a that's a crazy idea. You should, I should respect those that disagree with me. Yeah, that's what Peter says. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, the reality of faith in God is evidenced by our upright behavior in the face of the unjust suffering that we're facing because of our allegiance to Christ. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You see, the opposition and the suffering we face because of our allegiance to Christ, and this could expand other suffering that we have, physical, those types of things, they open up new doors of opportunity for us to speak God's Word even with the knowledge that that word may not be appreciated, may not be respected, we still do so. Because we want to be suited up. We've made those pledges that we will embrace suffering as God using it for good. We will entrust our suffering souls to God in the midst of our suffering, and we will ensure that we will continue doing good in the face of that. That's how we suit up for the opportunity God is giving us as His people in 2022 to suffer for Christ. Brother and sister, have you pledged your life that when suffering comes to you, because it is coming, that you are ready to welcome it into your life so that it's used for your good and for God's glory? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your truth. Father, we're thankful that it prepares us. Lord, you have literally thought of everything we can face. And Father, I pray that we as your people, both as an entire church and as individual followers of you, that Lord, we, you would use this to prepare us for suffering for Christ, to be wise in what we do, Lord, not seeking it out, but Lord, when it comes, not shrinking back in fear, but finding the boldness because we've entrusted ourselves to a God who who is using this for our good and for His own glory. Father, I pray that when suffering comes that we will not be like the, the, the cattails that just blow over in the wind, but Lord, we would be mighty red oaks 
that can stand with strength beyond ourselves because we are rooted in Christ. We are certain of His work in our lives in this world is leading to His exaltation and that glory He has on that day, we will share in it if our faith is real. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.